So we start a brand new sermon series, Words of Wisdom, the Power, Praise, and the Apostle Paul. And so um, I'm really excited. We're going to be looking at Philippians and Thessalonians over the next few weeks. And so I haven't actually had a chance to teach on Paul actually for about three years. We spent some time on that. And so coming coming back to that, and I, I think that we have something, uh, there's something to behold here. So listen, let's start um, with the first chapter from Philippians. And um, Philippians, just teach for a second, you know, Philippians is known as the joy chapter. Matter of fact, we, we know that um, within these, these four, just, uh, four short verses, the joy is mentioned uh, 14 different times. Uh, Paul continues to talk over and over and over again about finding joy. And so, um, so let's look at the very beginning of this uh, particular uh, great letter from uh, Paul, writing from Rome back to the Philippians. And so this is what he has to say. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with you joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So the title of my sermon tonight is called The Silver Lining. And so I went back and looked at um, the, the definition for silver lining um, because Paul really is looking for the silver lining in the Philippians. And so, so here's the definition for a silver lining. And we all have experienced or used that expression before. So the definition, it's a metaphor for optimism and a, a negative occurrence may have a positive aspect to it. So that's the definition. So then I went back and um, researched where is the first time that phrase silver lining originated? And I found the answer. It's John Milton who wrote a poem back in 1634. And so this is what John Milton wrote. This is part of the poem. Was I deceived or did a sable cloud? Turn forth her silver lining on the night. I did not err. There does a sable cloud. Turn forth the silver lining on the night and cast a gleam over this tufted grove. Which is beautiful. Now, listen, I just want you to know, I, when I read that, I, I don't usually use the word tuft grove in my normal vocabulary. So I looked up the word tuft. Tuft is a collection of grass that's held together at a base. So I just feel like that's important that I need, knew that. So now I know that. So tuft grove. And so what's interesting about the, the silver lining that refers to the shining edges of clouds. So have I got a picture so this is a picture that I found this last week. I actually found it on the internet. And so I had never thought about the silver lining was actually with that expression, which goes back to John Milton, 1634, and has everything to do with the, the shimmering edges of a cloud. So then since I was preaching on this this last week, Don and I were taking a walk. And so I took a picture of my own silver lining in my neighborhood this last week. And I thought, wow, that's just amazing. So every time I look at clouds now, I have a new perspective on that phrase, silver lining, because it has to do with the edges around the cloud. So then, uh, then I started thinking, okay, so I found out the original origin. I found out the definition of silver lining. I actually took a picture of the cloud, and then I started looking for quotes about silver linings. And so I found this one. It was um, from Voltaire who said this. I love this quote. Life 
is a shipwreck, but we must not forget to sing in the lifeboats. I like that. And so when I Googled the inspirational quotes about silver linings, I found that. I love that. So then, okay, so then I thought, okay, I got a definition of silver lining. Then I found out, I took a picture of silver lining. I found the, the origin of the silver lining. It came from a quote. I found a quote from silver, uh, uh, came from a poem. I found a quote. And then I started looking for people who truly embrace this definition of a, a negative occurrence may have a positive aspect to it. And so when I started Googling all that information, I put in the computer, and you're not going to believe some of the most inspirational quotes I've ever heard came from this person, Helen Keller. And so this is what Helen Keller said about life. She says, you know, the silver lining, the struggle which ever evil necessitates is one of the greatest blessings. It may, it makes us strong, patient, helpful men and women. It lets us into the soul of things and teaches us that although the world is full of suffering, it is full also of overcoming it. She goes and says, the optimist believes, attempts, achieves. He stands always in the sunlight. His soul meets his own and beats a glad march to every new discovery, every fresh victory over difficulties, every addition to human knowledge and happiness. No pessimist, she says, ever discovered the secret of the stars or sailed to an uncharted land or open a new heaven to the human spirit. She says, keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. And then she goes and says, I am only one, but still I am only, I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. And then the last thing she shared, and I thought this is really powerful because it really kind of leads into my, my story tonight. A bend in the road is not the end of the road unless you fail to make the turn. <laughs> so here's my story tonight. This is a true story. So last Sunday, uh, you know, I usually run on, uh, in the morning and then usually in the afternoon, on Sunday afternoon, maybe three or four o'clock, if it's not too hot, I'll go for a jog. So um, last Sunday, I'm running in my neighborhood. And um, so I'm minding my own business and I'm, I'm almost done. I'm about maybe nine minutes from being home. And so all of a sudden I see some of my neighbors and my, when I say neighbors, they're not like my next door neighbors. They live on the other side of the neighborhood. And, and so um, I see them out and about. And so they have two dogs. You know where I'm going with this. They have a big dog and they got a little bitty dog. And the little bitty dog is a little white dog about this long, about that tall. And, and he's a little spitfire. And so um, I'm running, I'm on the other side of the road and all of a sudden, the dogs start chasing me. Now, usually dogs love to chase me, but they don't normally bite me. So this dog decides he's going to bite me. So he bites me. And so I'm, then the dog bites me, and he runs home. So then I'm thinking, okay, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's not that big, big of a deal. So then I take a few more feet, and I realize, wow, there's blood on my leg. And I'm thinking, this is not good. And I'm thinking, I just want to go home. So then I'm thinking, next thing is, I wonder if the dog has its shots. So then I turn around and I said back towards my neighbors, I said, does your dog have its shots? And all of a sudden, 
the woman's husband comes out behind his house. He's wrapped in a towel. He must have been at the pool. He heard the commotion. And he says, of course our dog has its shots. And I said, well, I just wanted to make sure because the dog bit me. And then he says to me, the dog didn't bite you. I saw the whole thing. You scratched yourself. And I said, no, I didn't. I reached down on my leg and I wiped off the blood off my leg. I said, do you see the blood on my leg? He says, I see the blood on the leg, but you did it yourself. So then we had words. And the words were, man, I, I'm not trying to start anything with you. I'm trying to be a good neighbor to him. So then um, he comes back at me and he accuses me. And finally, I just let it go. So I know I'm about nine minutes from home. So I began to run home. So then I'm thinking, no, you know what happens and sometimes when you are confronted with things like that? A lot of times you don't, you, you, you think of things immediately after are the things you should have said. Can I amen on that? So because you can't always, you know, uh, when you're in the middle of it and you're upset and you're like, your, your blood's kind of flowing and you're just like minding your business and then someone accuses you of something, then, then it just kind of, you know, kind of ruffles your feathers. And so I wasn't thinking real clearly. I just want to go home. So then I'm thinking, okay, so I'm running home. I'm minding my own business. And guess what happens? Here he comes. Him and his wife. Now, in the meanwhile, I was, there was about six minutes between all that happening. And then when he see him and his golf cart coming towards me. And I'm thinking, oh man, this isn't good. This is not going to be good. So then I started thinking all the things I should have said to him over the last six minutes, I started thinking about. So he gets out of the cart, and this is what he says. He gets out of the golf cart. He has his hands like this. And he says... I am so sorry. My wife told me exactly what happened. I'm an idiot. I never should have said that to you. And he says, my wife told me that you were a, a, a priest. And I said, yes, I'm a priest. <laughs> I said, I, I'm the priest at New Covenant United Methodist, right? And so, yeah, and I said, and then I finally, you know, I'm joking, but I said, yes, I am a pastor. And then he, and then I said, man, I would not lie to you. I said, I would never lie to you. I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. I said, and by the way, listen, I got run over by a truck about a year and a half ago. And I said, I'm, I'm running without a shirt. I said, you can look at the scar. And he says, wow, you got run over by a truck. And I said, yeah. He says, what are you doing running in our neighborhood? And I said, well, I'm starting to reconsider that now after your dog bit me. I am not making that up. <laughs> now listen, here's the interesting thing in those six minutes. I, that whole situation was a complete train wreck. And we've all been in situations that have been very uncomfortable. Uh, maybe someone accuses you of doing something when you know you didn't do it. And things could have really got out of control. I mean, the best way I could describe this guy so you get a visual image, he was... Rocky Balboa at 50. He was a big guy. As a matter of fact, I thought he was going to knock my block off. True. 
But what's very interesting to me is in the midst of that is that by the time it was all over, he asked for forgiveness. He told me he was sorry. He realized he was being an idiot. He was sorry for accusing me of something I didn't do. And the last thing he says, hey man, I, I, I just want you to know, and if anything comes of that, I'm good for that. Just let me know. I'm so sorry. And I, you know, I, it was just a, so what happened I, in those six minutes was a, a complete, it was amazing. The transformation that happened between, I mean, forgiveness, reconciliation, um, you know, thank you for coming and sharing that with me. And so the reason why I tell you that is at first I never would have thought I would have found a silver lining in that story. But it's amazing within those six minutes, within those six minutes came a silver lining. Forgiveness, reconciliation, love. Hmm, wow. It's amazing sometimes if you look hard enough that you can find a silver lining, even in very difficult situations. Now listen, here, here's the good news for, to, for to think about tonight. When I think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, once again, let's look at the definition. A metaphor for optimism, a negative occurrence may have a positive aspect to it. And so what I think one of the greatest images that we have of Jesus Christ when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And what I love about this image about the, this poem that John Milton wrote, he said, you know, basically the light comes shining through the clouds and you see the silver lining and there's something beautiful to behold. There's something positive to come out. And so when I look at and when I think about the love of Jesus Christ, so we look at the crucifixion, which is a very dark day. But three days later, we got the resurrection. Now you can't have the you can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. And you don't have the resurrection without well, you can't have you can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. You can't have the crucifixion, you don't have the resurrection. It all is intimately woven together. And here comes after well, it, it took three days. But here comes the silver lining of everlasting life. Jesus Christ has been risen from the dead. Can we amen on that? So, so even in the very essence of who we are, and the reason why we're here tonight is that we can find the silver lining of everlasting life to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's another interesting thing. So we have been looking, once again, so... Um, you know, I, I don't know about you all, but you know, we I just prayed about the pandemic. So we've been in, in the pandemic for a, a you know a year and a half, and and we're still looking, we're seeking, we're we're searching for the silver lining. We, you know, the, as I prayed just a minute ago, we we got this thing going on in the, over the over the part of the world, Afghanistan, the Taliban, uh, the, all that evil stuff going on. That you know, once again, where's the silver lining and that? You, we've got, we had wildfires, we had the earthquake, the, the Haitians uh, people got pummeled last week. It was just awful. And so we continue to look for the silver linings in life. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul had this down because see what's interesting is Paul was, was really rocking the Christian world. I mean, you know, in a bad way. He was, um, until Jesus had to come to Jesus with Paul. Can anybody amen on that? Do you realize that? Uh, and so uh, Jesus finally gets a hold of him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you crucified? Why, why, why are you persecuting me? Cut it out. Stop it. He's blinded by the light. 
And, and so what's very interesting about this story is that, let me just share with you, let me teach for a second about the Apostle Paul, because, you know, I haven't taught actually in Paul for the last three years. So what's very powerful about the Apostle Paul, do you remember where Paul's from? He's from Tarsus. What's a big deal of Tarsus? Well, Tarsus is a really big, I mean, it was a big city. Matter of fact, the reason why it was a big city is because the Romans actually gave incentive to actually come and live in Tarsus. Matter of fact, do you know how many people lived in Tarsus? One of the largest, uh, largest cities in the Roman Empire, about 300,000 people. And that means that they had, what's what? They had the best libraries, best education. They had Harvard there. They had the best theaters. They had the best, and they had the Olympics. All these wonderful things going on in Tarsus. Matter of fact, if you were a, a Jewish person and then you wanted to live in Tarsus, guess what? They would actually make you a Roman citizen. And the reason why they actually, because they wanted you to be, well, they wanted your allegiance. The Roman Empire gave you an incentive to come and live in Tarsus and, the, and they would give you a free Roman citizenship card and tax-free. Woohoo! Right? No wonder everybody wanted to live in Tarsus. Guess who lived in Tarsus? Paul. Paul was educated. Matter of fact, matter of fact, his family was actually very fairly well to do. They were tent makers. We know, we know that he was educated. He went back to Jerusalem by Gamaliel. He was one of the, the finest rabbis in the day in the first century. Saul actually learned from him. So in other words, it, the, the, the Jewish people, his, his, his mother and father, Saul had great potential. Great potential, become one of the greatest Jewish leaders of the, of the time, which is just amazing. So he has got this unbelievable education. He has come from this one of the great towns in the Roman Empire. So he's very well educated. He has the best of the best. He goes and studies from the best of the best. And so we find this is all of Saul's background. In the midst of all this, Saul finally volunteers and he is out to get the Christians. Now, what's very interesting about the story is, and if you all know a little bit about Paul's history, is that we find that, 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 that the Christians were continued to, to, well, they called them followers of the way, and they became more and more popular. And people are following Jesus Christ and his teaching. And Saul, Saul decides he is going to go out and he's persecuting the Christians. He's going to go and get them. Matter of fact, we also know that Saul was actually at the place in which Stephen, the first martyr, was actually killed. They laid their cloaks at Saul's feet, he basically gave the green light in order for them to stone, drop the rocks on Stephen in order that he would be killed. Saul was there in the middle of all that. Matter of fact, we also know there was a time in which we find that, that, um, that the, he finds out that there's, there's a bunch of Christians way up towards Damascus. Now, what's very interesting, you ready for this? Don't miss the detail. Do you realize how far it is from Jerusalem to Damascus? How many miles? 130. 130 miles. Now, listen, Saul is a man on a mission. He is really gung-ho about going and getting those Christians. So much that he is willing to travel 130 miles to go get the Christians up up in Damascus, bring them back to Jerusalem in order that they might be on trial in order that they finally could be executed. That's what I call pretty gun ho. Why would he do that? Why would Saul do that? Once again, you have to read between the lines because I believe that Saul was trying to make a name for himself. He wanted to be a part of the elite of the elite. He wanted to be a part of the Sanhedrin and he was young. 
I mean, he would have been one of the youngest people to actually reach those heights. So Saul is all gun ho. And so on the road to Damascus, as he makes his 130 mile journey up to go get those Christians in order to hold them accountable for their belief in Jesus Christ, Jesus gets a hold of him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now you know the rest of the story. Now, what's very interesting, Saul, you look about his portfolio. He actually has a pretty impressive portfolio. So his writings helped shape one-third of the world's population. He was only second, the second most important figure in the Christian faith next to Jesus. He translated the gospel of Jesus into philosophical categories and in the language of the Greco-Roman so people could understand it. He wrote or attributed 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament and half of the book of Acts was written in order that everybody would know Paul's story. Wow. That's Paul. Matter of fact, here's a picture of a map of what Paul, actually, Paul got around a lot. See all those little squiggly lines? You talk about a man on the mission? Paul went all over. You know why? Because he was completely sold out for Jesus Christ. And so when I looked at all this information I just shared with you, so I think, you know, I think what's really powerful about Saul is that, I mean, this is a guy, as I said, he was, I, I think he was a man on a mission. He took his blind ambition. Here's my little quote for the night. He took his blind ambition and turned it into a submission to Christ's mission. Let me say it again. He took his blind ambition because he was trying to make a name for himself, and Jesus took it and turned it into a submission to Christ's ultimate mission. So as I went back and reflected upon all this information tonight and started thinking about, G, about the Apostle Paul, what I started thinking is about, out of everybody, out of all the people that Jesus could have chosen, he chose Paul. Why did he do that? Because you know what? Jesus saw the silver lining in Paul. I never thought about that until this week. Jesus saw the silver lining in the apostle Paul. He had all the unbelievable attributes, the qualities to be able to propel the Christian church. But the reason, what the ultimate was, he wasn't propelling the Christian church forward. He was knocking it down and taking it backwards. And what's amazing, what's truly a miracle in the middle of the story is that Jesus could take Saul, Saul, the one who's trying to kill all the Christians, and he completely transforms his life and makes him submissive in order to bring him towards a brand new mission of bringing glory to Almighty God. Can we amen on that? Isn't that amazing how he could take him, which means there's hope for you and me, isn't it? That Christ could use me and Christ could use, uh, use all of us to be able to glorify him. I love that part of the story. So what I think is very powerful when you think about how, how Jesus looks at Saul and he had all the perfect, because he was, a, he was studied, he had an education. No wonder that Paul wrote about things like the imagery about the, the Olympics, about people running, the people who were boxing. Where did he get all that? From Tarsus. Where did he get his education? Because he was a, how did he get his, get out of, job, get out of jail uh, all the time, over and over and over again? He was always in jail, right? Because he was a Roman citizen. So he had all these things, they all kind of came together. And yet in the midst of all these things that Jesus sees, saw, and he is the perfect fit in order to advance the Christian church forward. And he does. 
So let's look at the story tonight. So we come from Philippians. I I just read the beginning of Philippians. It it, it says, so Paul, Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. So what in the world does all that mean? It sounds like just typical kind of normal Paul, salutation, beginning, opening stuff. It's, usually you read the first five verses and you think, okay, well, that's just kind of Paul. Uh, but what's amazing is that there's a, there's a true truth to this because so Paul is writing back to Philippi and what's very powerful is that this is when Paul is writing this letter, guess where he's writing from? A prison, Around 62 to 64 AD, what happens to 64 AD? Nero comes in, he kills all the Christians. Wipes them all out. This is when Paul was probably a, died of the martyr in Rome. And also uh, Peter was actually probably part of the ones who were rounded up. And Peter actually was crucified or killed in some form or fashion also. But when is he in Philippi? He's actually there about 10 years before. So what we find here is that Paul is in Rome. He's in prison. He's waiting to probably be executed. He doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. And he's writing back to his followers in Philippi. But it's been 10 years since he's been there. He, he, he started that church ten, a decade later. And yet he has this passion and love for his people in Philippi. And he, in the midst of all this, he's writing this, cha- this, this letter back to them. And get us what it's all about. It's all about joy. Four chapters. But he mentions it over and over and over and over and over. 14 different times. He mentions the word joy. And he is writing in a prison cell. Wow. Amazing. So, so when I, I think about this, it, it really is amazing because when you begin at the very beginning of this, so he says, uh, the, he used the first words, he uses the word uh, servant. Um, greetings from Paul, and he says something about well, you, servants. Or what's very interesting is the word slave. A servant, slave in the Greek could be used either way. Uh, William Barclay actually focuses in probably the really original translation some of your Bibles might say servants, some of them may say slaves. What I think is really important, and don't miss the details, because he talks about the word servants. Paul, greetings from Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between being a servant and being a slave. And in this case, Paul was talking about really being a slave to Jesus Christ. And so here's the question for us to think about. Are you willing to not just come and go as a Christian, like a servant? As a servant, you can come and go. But if you're a slave, well, ultimately, but to be Christ's possession forever. So if you're a servant, you can come and go. But if you're a slave, you can't come and go. You become a possession of your master and so when Paul uses those words about servant, he's really not using the word servant. He's probably using the word slave. He's saying, I am completely sold out. I'm a possession of Jesus Christ. Oh, that takes a whole nother meaning, doesn't it? I mean, do we want to just kind of come and go as Christians? Or is Jesus truly, am I one of Jesus's possessions? I am all in. I am completely sold out to him. 
different way of thinking about it, isn't it? And we, have, we find those, it's this one little word in the very beginning, greetings from Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. Here, here's why I think about this, uh, about possessions. I, 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 I've got possessions. You all got possessions. We all got possessions. But what's interesting, someday when I'm dead and gone, when I'm, all my stuff becomes my kid's stuff, Guess what happens to my possessions? I brought a few possessions. Do you realize, like, I have the possession. Here's my Florida Southern, uh, Florida Southern diploma. Um, I've got, a, I got um, a pair of vintage Kelvin Durant's here. I've got uh, a Swiss pocket, pocket knife. I've got, um, and by the way, I've got all this great stuff. But you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to the garbage. My kids aren't going to keep this stuff. It's my possessions, but, but what are my kids going to do with this stuff, right? Uh, they're going to sell it at bargains of blessings. That's where it's going, right? <laughs> now, my wife, however, my wife's got some pretty nice possessions. She's got a lot of diamonds. Olivia's going to do really, really well. I will say that. But my boys, they're going to get baseball bats is what they're going to get, right? And what I think is most important, the reason why I tell you that a little about, about possessions tonight and I believe this is the truth. The greatest possession that I can give you or I can give to my children or I can give to anyone is ultimately the love of Jesus Christ. Because you, I mean, it's a possession, but it is boundless. You can't put a price tag on that. I mean, I, I, I mean, what, what is it? What Jesus says? Uh, uh, you can profit the whole world, gain the whole world, but you can lose your own soul. Why did Jesus say that? Uh, when you think about possessions. Now, here's the other little thing. Once again, I love this. So Jesus, Paul says, okay, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. But then he also says, hey, greetings to you, saints. And he goes on and says, grace and peace. Now listen, once again, you read the opening line. Okay, that's all, once again, it's a salutation. It's like da, 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 da. But then what's very interesting, the words grace and peace, the little translation grace in the Greek means a lovely life. And peace in Hebrew means shalom, which is a total well-being. So when you put them all together, what Paul is saying is that grace to you and peace to you. He's saying, I hope that you are totally, your total well-being and you have a lovely life in Jesus Christ. Greetings to you, my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. A total well-being found in Jesus Christ of lovely life. Wow. So we have this, this, this idea that Jesus, I mean, but Paul sees his, his, his colleagues, his, his, his friends in Philippi, they've been apart for almost 10 years. And so what's amazing to me is he sees them as partners. I love that, partners. We're all partners together. Even though they've been apart for 10 years, he's, I mean, around 52, he makes that church, and then it's now 62 AD, and yet there is, they still have this connection again. Then I started thinking about, once again, uh, Jeff gave that immense, uh, announcement a few minutes ago. May I've got a picture of how we were partners at uh, Lake Pan this, like, a couple of weeks ago. There's my friend Brenda, who was, we were just, you know, down at Lake Panasofki, uh, uh, giving out potatoes and ham, and there's some of our other brothers and sisters, and it was just great, because it was a part of our Changing Hearts 
initiative and, and we got the money from the conference and we just did a whole lot of good together. And what I loved about that is that we, what well, was our church, it was also Lake Pan Church, but it was also our brothers and sisters who are part of our, our Changing Hearts initiative, all of us working together as partners. Paul's on to something. He gets it. The idea of being partners. So Paul looks back to his brothers and sisters in Philippi and he sees them as partners. And so what's very powerful is that we find this interesting truth. And so Paul has is, faced all this, this trials and tribulation. He's always, in, he's always in prison. I love this quote from Second Corinthians. This kind of sums up what, where Paul's coming from about, once again, finding hope in Jesus Christ. And yet still finding joy in the midst of this misery. I have faced dangers from rivers, dangers from dangers from dangers from robbers, from people, from Gentiles. I faced dangers in the city and desert and the sea and, and the false brothers and sisters. I faced the dangers with hard work and heavy labor. I have made sleepless nights. I've hungered and I've thirst. I, I've often gone without food and I've been cold and I've been without clothes. I've been shipwrecked. Paul just lays it all out. I mean, he had every right to be miserable. All that he's gone through, all the trials, all the tribulations, and he's in Rome and he's rotten in a prison. And yet over and over again, he writes back to his brothers and sisters in Philippi and says, listen, you can still find joy. I find joy in you. I'm finding joy in Jesus Christ. Paul has found something that many of us are still seeking. He called, and we call that the silver lining of life. You know, what's very interesting, let me just give you a, a little tidbit of information. So um, when Paul founds that, actually um, established that church in Philippi back in 52 AD, ready? One of his first converts is a woman by the name of Lydia. Remember Lydia? Lydia was the one who traded in uh, purple uh, linens. Um, she was pretty wealthy. Um, very not very often do women have such a prestigious position. She, she was pretty well, well off. So he converts her, he baptizes her. And so um, he has that relationship. But then he goes on back to Philippi and he, he does something that you wouldn't think it would have got him in trouble. But he actually finds this fortune teller lady and he converts her and he casts out the demons in her. And so all of a sudden she's been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but not gift of fortune telling. And so the, the slaves, the slave owners of her aren't happy. They throw Paul in jail. They beat him. They strip him naked and they throw his, himself into prison. And yet what's very interesting, you all know the story is that we, I call this the foreshadowing. The foreshadowing of what's going to come in Philippi, I mean in Rome, 10 years later. This is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen as Paul writes back to Philippi. You know what he, he, you know what he says? He, he's in prison and he's sitting there and all of a sudden there's an earthquake. And the gates of the jail fly open. And the jailer freaks out because he realizes they're all going to escape. And he's about to kill himself. And then Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're still here. We're not going anywhere. And what's the, once again, what's the detail? You know the detail? Don't miss the detail. What were they doing when all that went down? Singing hymns and praising Jesus Christ. They have found the silver lining and the silver lining rests in the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ. 
We find that story in 52 AD, and fast forward 10 years later, as Paul is writing this epistle back to his church in Philippi, and he says, hey, listen, the same joy that I had 10 years before is the same joy I'm still linking to, even though I've been shipwrecked, even though I've been down, even though I've been beaten, even though I've been gone through 40 lashes minus one, even though I have been stoned, even though I've gone through all that, Paul says, I can still find joy in Jesus Christ. Amen on that. And it's the question for all of us today, even though we're going through the pandemic, even though that we're dealing with so much, maybe so much misery in our own lives, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can still find this silver lining. Always there is joy in him. That's what Paul wants us to understand tonight. So I, I think it's really powerful as um, I bring this uh, kind of to the end. Uh, I think it's very powerful is that they send this guy named Ephrodius. Uh, he is a, a, a messenger. Um, um, his name is Epaphrodius. And, and what's very interesting about this guy, do you realize he had to travel 800 miles to take a care package? Now that's what I call going the extra mile. Why did they do that? It's because the people of Philippi wanted Paul to know how much they still loved him and cared about him. They probably brought him some food. They brought him some blankets. He's on house arrest in Rome. And he is their messenger of love and grace. And so we, we get to the end of the story. And Paul begins and he says, listen, I, I, once again, I, I thank you. And he says, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers. I'm thankful for all you. Every time I pray, it's always a prayer full of joy. So he talks about thankful and prayers and thankful and prayer. And prayer leads to joy. Can I amen on that? Don't miss that prayer and gratitude are the practices of joy, joyful people, regardless of our circumstances. So we have this, this silver lining. Uh, Paul wants us to understand and grasp it. Uh, he, under, he wants us to even, even, even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of trials, even through the midst of tribulations, look for the silver lining in life. And so I, when I started, I realized this this last week, but you know, we have, when I walked in just a few minutes ago, I, when I, I saw all this food, that food everywhere, it, people just continue to bring food for the food pantry at Wildwood. It's amazing to me. And you realize that they, they have been, uh, the, the Wildwood food pantry has been so blessed even during the pandemic. People have given, you know what they've done? They, they've gotten, received probably more money than they've ever received before. You know why? Because many people gave their stimulus checks to the Wildwood food pantry. Now, I would call that a silver lining, wouldn't you? Uh, I, I'm, we, we, we um, uh, my friend Brad, who's a part of our staff, we started this whole thing about the 50-state challenge. I hope that we continue to do that. We've, we're up to 37 states. Do you realize, I don't know how many states we reached before the pandemic, but you know what? I guarantee it wasn't 37. And two countries. Not bad, right? I call that a silver lining. Um, when I went through my wreck about a year and a half ago, um, it, was, it was miserable. But you know what's interesting about the whole thing? It, it made me closer to my wife than I've ever, probably ever been in my life. Because you know what? We had to shut down our lives. And you know what we did? We walked and avoided the dogs. <laughs> I call that a silver lining. It's there. You gotta look for it. 
Six minutes. In those six minutes, I never would have thought I would have found a sign of silver lining. In three days, I guarantee the apostles in the world never thought that they would see the silver lining, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here, I close with this tonight. I, on, I think it's Thursday, and I have my service for my friend Don Whip. I love Don. He was on, the, he actually, Don was my boss. Uh, he was a chairman of the staff parish committee. I built a beautiful relationship with him and Yabi, and he passed away a few weeks ago. And um, um, I, I never forget my conversation. Don was always wanting to make sure that he had his uh, things in order. So he invited me and Donna uh, over, and we had, um, we had salad and Beef, I think we had vegetable beef soup. And what's interesting over the salad and vegetable beef soup that day, I asked him, so Don, you okay? Are you all right? He knew what I was talking about. He said, yes, Harold. I'm good. So Paul talks about that. He says at the very end of this beginning, he talks about, you know what? I could live or I could die. Either way, I'm good. Paul found something. I think we all continue to seek in life. And I call that the silver lining. And through the good news of Jesus Christ, it's always there.